Welcome back, not just to the podcast, but also to 1620s Jamestown. Back to the first permanent English colony. And since we last really discussed Virginia back in February, it's probably time for a quick recap. Misery, corruption, disease, and death. Now you're all caught up. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvola, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. To be a little more specific, though, the founding of Virginia was a two-decade exercise in experimentation and corruption. We saw a hugely diverse group of people coming for a hugely diverse set of reasons and with a hugely diverse range of visions of what the colony would ideally look like. Over 80% of colonists either died or left, and factional battles on both sides of the Atlantic made things even harder. In spring of 1622, after years of seeming peace between the English and the local Powhatan Indians, warriors massacred a quarter of the colony's population in the course of a single day, and pushed the rest back to the brink of starvation in an attempt to drive them out. In the aftermath, colonists went to war with the Powhatan, and King James finalized his takeover of the Virginia Company, making Virginia England's first crown colony, under direct royal control. Then, before he could impose his own vision on Virginia, he died too, leaving his son Charles in charge of a colony he had no idea what to do with. Along the way, we saw a few important developments. First, the introduction of tobacco as a cash crop on which virtually all successful economic development was based. Second, the introduction of a legislative assembly. And third, the first handful of Africans arrived as indentured servants stolen from Spanish and Portuguese slave traders. When Virginia became a crown colony, its governor was Francis Wyatt, the grandson of a man who had rebelled against Mary Tudor, who was born in Kent, educated at Oxford, and married to the niece of Edwin Sands. Wyatt had arrived in Jamestown as governor in 1621, and he'd brought the colony's first constitution. So he'd served through the massacre and he would see the colony through the transition to crown possession. When the king took over Virginia, he kept Wyatt in office, and he sent the governor a new set of instructions. But he sent nothing regarding the General Assembly, which was a clear sign that he didn't intend to keep it around. That meant that no elections could legally take place for the House of Burgesses, and instead, the king appointed a carefully selected bipartisan group of colonists to act as a council, a blend of names that we've discussed before, and those we'll hear a lot more about. Francis West, George Yardley, George Sands, Roger Smith, Ralph Hamer, John Martin, John Harvey, Samuel Matthews, Abraham Piersey, 
Isaac Madison, and William Claiborne. And it was in the course of Wyatt's governorship that we do start to read the names of these and other people who would define the next era of Virginia history. Claiborne was appointed treasurer at the same time as Wyatt was made governor. Matthews helped lead troops against the Powhatan after the massacre. John Pott had been appointed to the governor's council at the same time as the others. But he'd been suspended after he, the colony's doctor, had used his skills to poison Powhatan leaders. The Virginia Company had given Harvey land in return for transporting so many people to Virginia, and Harvey had invested in a plan to produce potash there. And in 1623, he was sent at the head of a royal commission to investigate conditions in Virginia, with Matthews, Piercy, and John Pory also members. When Wyatt had come to office, his main priority was to encourage sustainable expansion in Virginia. He tried unsuccessfully to encourage the development of urban centers, and perhaps more importantly, to organize the increasingly disorderly expansion. We had touched on this a tiny bit before, but Virginia was rapidly becoming a patchwork of cultivated land, land falling into disrepair, and vacant wilderness. People would come to Virginia and buy as much land as they could so that they could grow tobacco, but then a huge percent either died or left without bothering to sell it or transfer ownership in any way. Others bought more land than they were able to maintain, so people were needing to settle farther and farther from Virginia's center and were increasingly separated by unmaintained and uncultivated wilderness. It was one thing to have an extremely rural society, but it was another thing to have isolated patches of people setting up individual homes in the wilderness completely lacking any sort of protection for themselves or their property. The colonists were still at war with the Powhatan, and there were additional problems like livestock wandering off or being killed by wild animals. And as the colony got more dispersed, not only was it virtually impossible to secure, economic diversification became more difficult and less likely and economic diversification was a major priority. One way that Wyatt saw to help combat the chaos, or at least minimize the risk, was to build a palisade from the James River to the York, with houses spread along it at regular intervals. This would provide a barrier, keeping Indians out and livestock in, and it would encourage colonists to fill the gaps between plantations rather than expanding further outward. Then, after things were going well within Virginia, they would resume the search for natural resources or a passage to the South Sea. At least, that was the plan. Between negotiating the aftermath of the massacre and the transition to Crown Colony, Wyatt ended up having his hands full. 
but he did successfully negotiate those two rough patches. In fact, he was an effective enough leader that when Harvey returned to England in February 1625 to report his commission's findings, he noted that the colony had recovered surprisingly well from the massacre, largely through its own efforts. He said that Virginia was efficiently governed despite company mismanagement, and he recommended Wyatt's prompt reappointment as governor, as well as the reappointment of most of his council. Basically, he said that from Virginia, governance was good enough that the best thing that the king could do was to take over and keep the colony's American government going with as little disruption as possible. And he said that was exactly what the colonists wanted. They were overwhelmingly in favor of the takeover. And his assessments were largely correct. Within Virginia, there was widespread support for the King's takeover. If you listened to even a couple episodes of the Jamestown series, I don't need to explain why. Even people who had been bitterly opposed to each other within Virginia, like, say, Francis West and John Smith, helped and encouraged the destruction of the London Company. But that's not to say that royal governments didn't have problems, too. And the colonists realized this. First, in theory, their property rights could be completely invalidated in the transition, and they wanted to prevent that. Second, they didn't want policies which made their tobacco less valuable, like excessive regulation or a monopoly. And third, and most important, they wanted to keep their legislative assembly. And to address these issues, Wyatt called a convention. He didn't have the legal authority to call a general assembly, but the governor, council, and assorted influential citizens could get together to discuss the colony's affairs, so that's what they did. They had already sent a petition the previous year, but the man they'd sent it with had died at sea, and the petition seemed to have been lost. So they drew up another one and sent it with George Yardley. They voiced their concerns on all of these issues, asking for an active parliament to confirm the validity of their land titles, asking that there be no tobacco monopoly, and asking that the General Assembly be retained as an institution, saying that it was the only way they could prevent their governors from becoming oppressive, and that without it, they couldn't transact public business efficiently. In addition, they begged that Virginia not be put under the control of Thomas Smythe and his associates, and they said that the colonists needed a shipment of clothing and tools if possible. They had already written the petition before they realized that King James had died, but King Charles's Privy Council was impressed with the petition and Yardley's advocacy, and they reassured him that they fully intended to respect Virginia's rights, including to the General Assembly. In reality, King Charles was a little bit noncommittal about the Assembly. He pretty much gave the colony free reign to do what it wanted, 
without calling many official assemblies, so they didn't become the source of legal conflict. If they did start to do any rabble-rousing, he could quickly shut them down by saying that their actions weren't authorized, but at the same time, he continually reassured them that he had no intention of doing away with the institution. Elections were held and laws were passed in, and enforced in Virginia, but they did so without either the support or the opposition of the king. He had more than enough trouble coming from Parliament at home, so he would just encourage Virginia and leave it be, which made him the first person to ever treat Virginia that way. And with few exceptions, this remained his policy throughout his reign. The king also had concerns regarding Virginia. First, members of the old London Company, specifically the Sands-Southampton faction, were still asking to get their company back. They actually had a good relationship with King Charles, unlike his father, because the year before, they had worked to impeach the Earl of Middlesex, who had opposed Charles and Buckingham's plan to go to war with Spain. Now, the king wasn't ready to give his colony back to a reconstituted London company, but he did reach out to Sands, Southampton, and Ferrer for suggestions about how best to run the colony. Specifically, he asked what was the best form of government for Virginia, and he asked what form of tobacco contract would be the most beneficial to the colonists and his own revenues. In response, they drafted a long, elaborate, and detailed document called the Discourse of the Old Company, detailing the company's struggles and pushing the king to restore it, or at the very least to place it in the hands of a committee which was friendly to them. In other words, not in the hands of Thomas Smythe or the Earl of Warwick, and the king seemed to agree to the latter part at least. The king's bigger worry, though, was about the diversification of Virginia's economy. Kings James and Charles weren't keen on tobacco anyway, but Virginia's dependence was objectively a problem. You cannot have a whole economy built around a single commodity, no matter how valuable it is. So the king told them repeatedly to figure out how to make pitch, tar, potash, iron, salt, pipe staves, or whatever, but something that wasn't tobacco. His highest priority was economic diversification. So these are the issues which were on everybody's mind as King Charles took the throne, and these issues would recur throughout his reign in one way or another. So the stage had been set for the next epic of Virginia history. But Wyatt needed to return to England to deal with his father's estate, so he sent a petition asking for permission to leave his position in Virginia and go home. Permission was granted, and in his place, George Yardley was appointed to his second term as governor. And in the meantime, John West temporarily filled in. 
It wasn't long, just long enough for West to compose another tract, apprising the king of Virginia's situation and reiterating the colonists' needs again. And the next spring, Yardley got to Virginia. And Yardley continued and expanded on Wyatt's policies. He established a checkpoint at Point Comfort, and he gave William Tucker complete authority to check ships and sound the alarm. He didn't pursue Wyatt's palisade, but to curtail disorderly expansion, he required people to get permission before moving their residences, and he even required them to get local permission before being absent from their property. The war with the Powhatan continued, now in its fifth year, and Yardley organized one of the most destructive English attacks since Wyatt's decisive 1625 victory, a surprise attack on Powhatan villages near English settlements, which was conducted along the lines of the old Jamestown raids. The English would sneak into the towns, kill people, and most importantly, destroy their corn. This had always proven the most effective method of attack, and yet again it worked, this time on a larger scale than had been done before. As Virginia stabilized and its rights seemed secure, people began to emigrate in larger and larger numbers, though the populations of Jamestown and Henrico actually shrank in these years. Land was increasingly organized into hundreds or particular plantations, which weren't quite towns, but which were groups of properties often established by people who already knew each other. And since the king hadn't yet officially reformed the House of Burgesses, enabling legal elections in the colony, in 1627, Yardley organized the sending of another petition, this one written more urgently, asking the king to re-establish its democratic institutions, and the king agreed, confirming that he would keep everything in the colony as it was in 1620, and instructing the governor to call an assembly in spring of 1628. He also sent a set of instructions to be discussed at the General Assembly, which was fairly common practice. The contents of the instructions, though, were discouraging. On the positive side, the king announced that he would prohibit the importation of Spanish tobacco into the English market, reducing foreign competition for Virginia's crops, which had been something that Yardley had pushed for. But he also said that all tobacco must be sold to the crown or its representatives. And he also said that because the colony had refused to explore economic diversification, no landowner could plant more than 200 pounds of tobacco per year and no servant more than 125 pounds. So overall, this was quite an assault on tobacco from Virginia's point of view. Then in November of 1627, Yardley died at 39 years old, and in his place, the king named John Harvey governor. But Harvey was still in England at the time, so Francis West was named interim governor 
and Captain General. And West held the assembly that the king had ordered, and, among other things, discussed the king's instructions. And they were received about as well as you might expect. The assembly drafted a response to the king, thanking him for prohibiting the importation of Spanish tobacco, but explaining that his proposed policies would have crippling effects on the colony. In fact, they said that the mere suggestion of a monopoly had made people fear for their financial future and had reduced trust in the king. First, they said that the limit of 200 pounds plus 125 per servant wasn't enough to live on. The highest price of tobacco in the 1620s was 36 pence a pound. So that would translate to an annual income of 30 pounds per year, which compared to the average of 40 wasn't too bad. At the lowest point of the decade, though, which was 7.8 pence a pound, the king's proposal would translate to six and a half pounds per year. And that simply wasn't enough. And in 1628, it was looking like Virginia would be seeing lower prices rather than higher ones. Worse, if the king imposed a monopoly, the tobacco planters would be at the mercy of whatever price the merchants chose to pay for it. There would be no competition and no bargaining by the planters. They would be able to sell to the king's agents for whatever price those agents demanded, or they wouldn't be able to sell at all. That meant that prices would go even lower, and Virginia's economic foundations would be completely destroyed. If the king insisted on creating a monopoly, he needed to at least agree beforehand on a minimum price and minimum quantity that he would be buying from the colonists. And for that minimum, they suggested that he commit to buying at least 500,000 pounds of tobacco per year at three shillings sixpence per pound delivered in Virginia, or four shillings delivered in London. If the king was unwilling to commit to these figures, then he needed to allow the colonists to sell to the Low Countries, Ireland, Turkey, and elsewhere. Colonists also explained the obstacles to economic diversification. They said that the reason they hadn't pursued economic diversification was that everything except tobacco required a substantial upfront investment. Rich people weren't moving to Virginia. They may or may not have been well-bred or well-educated, but none of them were coming to Virginia with much money. If they had had the kind of money needed to set up a new industry, they probably wouldn't bother settling in the Chesapeake to begin with. The Chesapeake was a last resort, not a dream destination. Tobacco required minimal skill and minimal investment, but it was fairly reliably profitable. 
The same couldn't be said of manufacturing pipe staves or mining iron. It was easy to say, develop other industries, but it wasn't exactly easy to do. The colonists acknowledged that salt was a bit more promising than the other ideas, and they agreed to pursue salt production. But on the necessity of protecting tobacco, they were united. But on the necessity of protecting tobacco, they were united. In addition to their written response, Virginia commissioned Wyatt, who was already in England, and two other Virginians to negotiate with the king in person. In these negotiations, they allowed them to come down six pence per pound on each of the prices they'd asked for. This was far too expensive for the king, though, and he didn't push the issue. There wouldn't be a tobacco monopoly, at least for now. But he also didn't commit to banning Spanish tobacco. But he also didn't commit to banning Spanish tobacco. So it was a win. It wasn't a perfect win, but it was a win. But at the same time, the episode had also instilled a bit of mistrust about the king's rule in Virginia. Now, around the same time as the General Assembly was held, the acting governor also received a message from the Powhatan, informing him that they had taken several hostages which they were holding at Pamunkey. The Powhatan wanted to negotiate a peace treaty. The problem is that the 1622 massacre had convinced the colonists that it was safer to be at war than at peace with the Powhatan. 1622 hadn't just been a devastating massacre. It had been a devastating massacre after years of peace and seeming friendship, and most of the members of the governor's council had actually lived through it. I mean, William Capps, who acted as a counselor and royal agent at this time, had lost his wife and kid in the attack or its immediate aftermath. And furthermore, Opitanganu was still a leader of the tribe. In their minds, and they literally said this, it was safer to be at war because if relations got too peaceful, then people wouldn't be as diligent in defending themselves. People needed to be on guard and they needed to prioritize maintaining their weapons and ammunition, and keeping them around in case of attack. The colony could not be caught off guard again, and so war was necessary. But they still had to get their hostages back, so the colonists made a cynical, though completely practical, decision. They would sign a peace treaty, and then they would break it at the earliest possible opportunity. So, in August, they signed the treaty, and they got the hostages back, and in January, they informed a Powhatan messenger that the treaty was void, saying that this was because the Powhatan had repeatedly violated the terms of the treaty by entering English settlements and stealing livestock. They told the messenger that they had forbidden the English to kill any Indians until February 20th, 
But after that, war would resume. Soon after this, though, Francis West returned to England. He had married George Yardley's widow, but she had also died and he had ended up in a spat with her children over the inheritance of her estate. So off to England he went for a while. And in his place, John Pott became the acting governor. Pott's medical knowledge made him indispensable to the colony, and he had been a faithful council member and he was generally popular but he had also repeatedly shown himself to be a thoroughly irresponsible individual. He'd been brought to court several times for neglect of engagements and for stealing pigs and cattle, and George Sands had lamented that he constantly chose bad company, people who, quote, hung upon him while his good liquor lasted. And his term as governor went about as well as you can expect, given that reputation. It wasn't a disaster, but it wasn't a success either. He did maintain defense against the Powhatan, and the assembly he presided over passed regulations regarding tobacco planting. But he was also the governor who had refused to allow George Calvert to settle in Virginia, And though his term wasn't particularly well documented, we do get little hints that there was corruption too, which wouldn't be out of character. One man under his governorship wrote that he hoped for an easterly wind to blow to send in noble Captain Harvey, and then I shall have right for all my wrong. Just under a year later, the man got his wish. After two years of things like finalizing paperwork, negotiating a salary, and negotiating about the colony's military needs, John Harvey arrived in Virginia as its new governor. He would become the second longest serving governor in 17th century Virginia, extremely successful in some ways, extremely unpopular at times, principled, naive, powerless, hot-tempered, and ultimately drawing out all the passions of the age in which he lives. Thanks for listening. If you have any opinions, thoughts, or theories about anything we've discussed in the show, I'd love to hear from you either on Facebook or Twitter, and you can find those links at the website AmericanHistoryPodcast.net, as well as links to first-hand accounts and things. See you next week.